read Proverbs 1, 8 through 33. If you'd like to stand with me, we'll just go ahead and and get started with reading here. We're going to read Proverbs 1, 8 through 33 as we continue in our second week in our sermon series, our, our sermon series in Proverbs here. And again, we are looking at Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 33, taking something of a larger text here this morning. Let's listen to God's Word here as we ought because of what it is. We have to listen with reverence. We ought to listen with rejoicing because this is the voice of our Father calling us, beckoning us, speaking to us. Let's listen with the reverence and, and respect that these words deserve. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason like Sheol. Let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by turning turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would anoint the reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your spirit. We pray that that your people would hear a, a a better word than the one I'm about to preach, that they would hear your voice, beckoning them, calling them, 
guiding them into the paths of wisdom and, and seeking to guard them from the paths of folly, which will end in destruction. We thank you that you love us so much that you would confront us and warn us and guard us and guide us in these ways. And we pray that you would give us humble hearts and listening ears that heed your good instruction. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began our five-month series in Proverbs with the introduction to the book of Proverbs, and, and perhaps we, we might call it the, the, really the first part of the introduction, because Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 does introduce the whole of the book to us, but Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 also serves as something, of maybe a longer introduction to the whole of the book. So this morning, we're beginning our time in the body of Proverbs 1 through 9, and these, these, this, uh, these chapters are like a, a series of poetic sermons, wherein a, a loving father is addressing his beloved son, and in this address, in these addresses, we'll, we'll see this father presenting two ways, two paths, two courses in which his son might walk. His son is young and vulnerable, his son is immature and uninitiated in the things of life, and, and like any loving father, the speaker here, Solomon, he desires to guide his son to wisdom and guard his son from folly. And so he sets forth these, these two paths. There's the way of wisdom, and there's the way of folly. There's the, the good path and the godless path. There's the way of life or the way that ultimately leads to death and destruction. And the Father says, you've got to choose. You've got to choose one of these paths. There, there, are, there are no other options available to you. There are only two paths. I'm going to tell you about them, he says. I, I'm going to describe them to you. I'm going to tell you where they lead and you need to make a decision for which path you will take. It's almost like an altar call in a way, right? I don't know if you have any experience with, with churches that do altar calls, but in them, a, a time comes toward the end of the sermon where, wherein hearers are, are pressed and persuaded to make a decision. Well, that's kind of what Solomon is doing here. Only it takes place at the beginning of the book and not at the end. He's, he's trying to bring his son to a moment of decision. And here's why. Because before we're able to, to, to walk the path of wisdom, the path to life, we have to purpose in our hearts to do so. We've got to consciously choose which we will follow, what path we will walk, who we will listen to in life. That decision has to be made by each and every single one of us. And it's incredibly urgent and eternally paramount that we make the right choice. So here in Proverbs 1, 8 through 33, the father begins the, the body of uh, the chapters 1 through 9 by speaking to his son about these two competing voices, you know, to, to know wisdom, to walk the right path, the, the path to life. We, we've got to know first whose voice we're to listen to and heed in life. And so Solomon is here trying to show his son what kind of voices he's going to hear in life. And so he tells them there's the voice of the greedy gang. There's, 
there's the voice of the crowd and of peer pressure. There's the voice of people who are driven to cruelty and ruthlessness because of their greed and selfishness. That's one voice you're going to hear in life. There's going to be peer pressure in your life. It's calling you to greed and selfishness and cruelty. But Solomon says, those who listen to those kinds of voices are undoubtedly headed for destruction. So then another voice comes forth, it's presented, and it's that of Lady Wisdom. It's the voice of wisdom personified as an attractive and compelling woman. And, and this woman is a street preacher, okay? Uh, some people say this is not very ladylike, uh, but she's a street preacher who, who admonishes her hearers to heed her, and if they don't, again, she says, destruction awaits you. But if you do listen to her, she says that she's going to lead us to a place of security and rest. And so our big idea this morning is this, in a world full of competing voices and choices, listen to wisdom. In a world full of competing voices and choices, listen to wisdom. And we'll see this big idea unpacked here as we look at three exhortations. First, hear the Father's guiding instruction, verses 8 to 9. Second, hate the gang's greedy temptation, in verses 10 to 19. And third, heed the lady's good admonition, in verses 20 to 33. First, though, hear the Father's guiding instruction. Our text begins in verse 8 by saying, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. And so, to begin with, these verses locate the context of of Proverbs here, chapters 1 through 9, in the believing household. Right? These are the words of a godly father to his son. And, uh, of course, the original context of this book was maybe a, a bit more specific than that. It was a specific household in Israel. It was the household of the king. And as we saw last week, Solomon, the king and son of David, he was the principal author, principal human author of this book. He's undoubtedly the speaker here in Proverbs 1 through 9. And understand that at this book and, and this style here, it was not at all unusual in that part of the world at the time. There are actually other examples of this kind of thing, similar ancient wisdom literature in other countries like Egypt, where a ruling king would be uh, addressing his, his son, the crown prince, in order to prepare him to rule well one day. It wasn't an unusual thing for, for ancient wisdom literature to be written in this respect, for a king to be speaking to his crown prince son, preparing him to rule well one day, teaching him wisdom and, and godliness and all of this. And that's what we see here in these verses. Uh, as, as we read, we might imagine Solomon, in our mind's eye here, Solomon in the palace courts addressing his crown prince of a son in order to prepare him to one day rule with wisdom and godliness and skill. Now, as, as some biblical scholars have pointed out, the fact that the crown prince is not specifically named here shows that while the original context of Proverbs in this address uh, was that of the royal household there in Israel, the, the lack of specificity here shows that this book was also published for more universal use, right? It was published so that it might be used among all God's people. It was published so, so that it might be something of a training manual for raising wise and godly children among the people of God. The, the anonymity of the son and the father here shows that this book was meant to be used in believing households among all of God's people, right? So for parents in the room, this means this book was designed 
in part for you to, to use in teaching and training and raising your children. And, and the, the, the book of Proverbs, doesn't it lend itself just so wonderfully to that? The, the many short, pithy, memorable phrases used throughout the book, they've been carefully crafted for us to memorize and repeat often. You might do that with your children, right? You might discern what aspects of their character and nature needs developed as they grow older. And you might choose corresponding proverbs and employ them for instruction and discipline in your household. And all as a way of, of training them and teaching them and bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as Ephesians 6.4 tells us to. This book it was made in part for you, to assist you in bringing up your children in a godly and biblical way. But moreover, these verses also show us something of how you, parents, that you bear the primary responsibility to raise and educate and train your children. This is a father addressing, educating, training, instructing his son. And he, and he, and he also commands his son to listen to the Torah or the teaching of his mother. Of fathers, mothers, I wonder if you've considered this, that that you ought to be your child's chief, chief teachers and in influences in life, right? That, that's not to say that, that no one else can ever teach them or, or influence them or guide them for their good. It's not to say that they can't learn from others in the church or in school or in catechism class or in community group. You know, pastors, teachers, coaches, mentors, they, they all have their place. It takes a village and everything. However, the most important human voice your child will ever hear growing up is and ought to be yours. The, the most significant informative presence in a child's life is that of his father's and mother's presence. And, and, the, and the other voices and teachers are, are often important and helpful and needed, but they need to be supplemental to your own. They're to assist you in raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, not replace you. Parents, you are the chief teachers of your children, which is a weighty and grave responsibility. And Proverbs has been given in part in order to equip you for that. But then it's also worth noting here that this book that we're reading right now, it's not merely a human book, right? It's not merely a compilation of human wisdom and words. This book, while written and edited by a man, is also inspired by God. This book is God's word to us as his children. This book is breathed out by the God of all heaven and earth. When you see the words, hear my son, your father's instruction, recognize in those words the voice of your heavenly father speaking to you, addressing you, recognize that God is speaking to you as his child, that he might instruct you and help you and guide you in the path of wisdom. Charles Bridges says of this verse, he says, God speaks here through the mouth of a parent blending paternal tenderness with his divine authority. You see, this, this book, it's, it's ultimately God's word to us. It, it's ultimately God's word to his adopted sons and daughters in Christ so that we might live lives of wisdom and grace. This book is God our Father seeking to parent us. This, this book is God our Father seeking to father you who are in the household of faith. This is God our Father instructing us and training us and educating us and preparing us, his royal children, 
to live lives of wisdom and grace and virtue in this world so that we might rule well as his vice regents in the church and in the earth so that we might be equipped and educated for a life well lived. You know, I've interacted with enough people as a pastor to know that many, many walk through life with a nagging sense, sometimes an overwhelming, but often a nagging sense of confusion and disorientation. And because many people walk through life lost and aimless and disoriented, many are, are also experiencing a great deal of anxiety and stress and uncertainty just a, a total lack of confidence. Is this the right thing? Is this the right thing? It's just making all sorts of terrible choices, leading them into paths that just are not, do not lead to flourishing. I don't know about you, but um, for Amy and I, one situation in which I can almost, sometimes that we find ourselves in, I can almost count, always count on us getting in a fight, or at least tensions being somewhat high, is, is when we're driving in a city or place that we're not familiar with. And uh, if, if you're married, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, when we're driving in a place that's new to us, and we're trying to find our way around, and you know Google Maps is it's helpful, um, but it's not always helpful, and it's not always right, and Apple Maps is even worse. And there's often construction and traffic and accidents that complicate matters. And so when you're driving and trying to navigate a place that you're just not familiar with, that you don't know well, there's often feelings of stress and anxiety and, and uncertainty and frustrations and tensions rise and a fight might very well ensue right there in the car. I think it's safe to say in our age of secularism and deconstruction, as more and more people are trying to navigate this life and all of its circumstances and hardships and complexities all on their own. And they just don't know the way. They're not familiar with the terrain. They've never lived life before. It's, it's everything that comes is new. And, and, and so they aren't equipped to navigate life without a trustworthy guide. They're increasingly lost and aimless and confused, and it's bringing a great deal of stress and anxiety and building tension in our particular cultural moment. Do you see this? It can't be the only one. This is part of the reason, I think, that our culture is so charged and tense right now. I've got good news for people that feel lost and aimless in life. You don't need to wander through life lost and aimless and confused, wrought with anxiety and disorientation, you can have, and if you're a Christian, you do have a God and Father who knows all because Christ, is, Christ has come to share his own sonship with us before the Father. He has come to likewise make us what he is, a child of God. You, you can know God as your Father, which means that you can have a Father who knows all, and who created this world, and who therefore perfectly knows this world, and how to navigate it, and how we ought to live in it, and who is therefore perfectly capable of guiding you through it in a way that will lead to your flourishing and joy. Abraham Kuyper once spoke of this, this comforting reality when he said that we ought to adjust ourselves to God's commands, not by force, as though they were a yoke of which we would like to rid ourselves but with the same readiness with which we follow a guide through the desert, recognizing that we are ignorant of the path which the guide knows, and therefore acknowledging that there is no safety but in closely following in his footsteps. 
You see how there's safety in, in listening to and being guided by the voice of your Father because He knows the way. And moreover, He you can be sure of this. In Christ, he loves you as his very own child. And so he is, he is intent on leading you to a life of joy and flourishing. That's the destination he wants to lead you to. And that's exactly what we find him saying in the next verse, verse 9 here. I wish we could spend more time on this, but we need to move quickly here. It, see here in verse 9 how, how listening to the wisdom of your father will... It will beautify you and adorn you. He says that, that his instruction will serve like a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. What does that mean? Well, a, you know, a graceful garland, a, a garland is like a, a crown made of flowers. All right, and God says that, that his instruction here contained in this book will be like a crown of flowers adorning your head. And not only that, but, but like pendants around your neck. He, he wants to deck you out with bling. He, he wants to deck you out with a, a beautiful piece of jewelry hung around your neck. This is where we get our series from the sermon graphic, if you, if you notice that. There's a lady wearing pendants around her neck. This is where we got that. But, but this, is an, this image is saying that the wisdom of God your Father, if you hear it, if you really hear it, not just, that, not just that you catch the, the sound waves in your lug holes, right? If you really hear, if you listen and apply what you hear to your life, well, God's wisdom will adorn you and beautify you. God's wisdom will make you lovely and attractive, not, not physically. Some of us just can't be helped in that area. But <laughs> I, I'm speaking personally, right? Um, but in your character, in, in your essence, in your, you'll have a kind of quality and distinctiveness about you that will make others kind of perk up and pay attention and just find you compelling and alluring. Maybe, maybe you've been around a Christian that when you walk away, they, they just refresh you. You find them refreshing. And you, you, whenever you've been around a Christian, that, that you just walk around, you walk away from time with him and you go, man, I, I want to be like that. I want to be like that person. I want to spend more time with them. It, that, they're like that because they've, their father's character is rubbing off on them. They're, they're like that because they've heard and heeded their father's instruction. They're becoming like him. And so can you. You you can be like that. You can be an adorned, beautified person, attractive and compelling. Your father wants that for you. So listen to him. Hear your father's instruction here in this book. Follow his guidance. Here he moves on into verses 10 to 19 to a bit of instruction and guidance. The father calls us to, to listen to his voice. But here he informs us of, of some other voices that we're going to hear in this life, from voices, some voices of temptation and sin, and, and he tells us to reject them and deny them because they're leading to destruction. Right? He, he tells us to hate the gang's greedy temptation. He says in verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And that might come off as initially confusing for some of us, right? 
He's talking about a group of people that he calls sinners. And it can be confusing because, after all, aren't we all sinners? And, of course, that is true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. But, but here, Solomon is, Solomon is talking about the kind of sinners, not, not the kind of sinners who have repented of their sin and begun to follow Christ and therefore are being progressively changed into his, his likeness and beauty and goodness. He's talking about the kind of sinners who are unrepentant, who are settled in their sin, who are committed to their sin, and who would beckon us to join them in their sad, dead-end state. Solomon writes, if they say, if, if, this, if these kinds of folks say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason like Sheol or like the grave, like the, the place of the dead, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder, throw in your lot among us, we'll, we'll all have one purse. In other words, the, the voice here is saying, the image that, that Solomon is giving here is that of a gang. And this gang is a group of scoundrels who commit ruthless, cruel, violent acts. They do terrible things to undeserving people and also that they might gain material goods and money and treasures. Verse 19 calls them those who are greedy for unjust gain. The, the, the underlying motivation for their cruelty is greed. Now, I don't know how familiar everyone is with the book of Proverbs here, but it seems no coincidence to me that the, the, the path of folly, as it's consistently portrayed throughout verses or chapters 1 to 9 here, it's consistently portrayed as lifestyles of greed and sexual immorality. We're going to see that more in the coming chapters. But the path of foolishness in these chapters is consistently portrayed as lifestyles of greed and sexual immorality. They relate to, to matters of money and sex. And you know, that makes a lot of sense when instructing a young man who would become king. He's going to come into a lot of money and power and likely to be the desire of many a young maiden, right? He's got to be equipped to face these kinds of challenges. But, you know, matters of money and sex are not just particularly relevant for a would-be king. Matters of money and sex are extremely relevant to us all. These two matters, are, are, they're worthy of our close attention in life because money and sex are two very prominent matters in almost everyone's life, and they can, they can either assist us in a life well-lived if approached within God's divinely ordained will and boundaries or if they're used outside of God's will for us, they can be uniquely destructive. And here Solomon shows how greed like this can and will lead to precisely that, to destruction. So he goes on to instruct his son on how to respond to these hooligans. He says, my son, you not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. And, and then he drops this little proverb in there. He says, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood, right? They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So he's saying, listen, I, I know 
that a group like this can be tempting to a young man as yourself. It can be attractive and persuasive to a young person. Peer pressure is a real thing, right? There's, there's a reason it works. We, we all want to belong and feel accepted in life, right? And, and even more, the, the goods, the precious goods, the plunder, the shared purse of this group, the gain of material things, it all sounds pretty attractive in some respect, isn't it? You want to be rich? You want to belong to a group? Don't we all? Right? But Solomon says, hey, the sting is in the tail with these guys. Don't buy it. It's a dead end. And he says, it's not just sinful, it's stupid. He goes on to show this in this little proverb. Even a bird, this dumb creature won't be caught by a trap that it sees someone setting for it. Even a bird has got enough of a self-protection mechanism in its brain so that if, if it sees someone setting a net to trap it, it won't fall for it. But this gang, this is so dumb. Come on, you're telling me that you're going to ruthlessly and violently steal from others and then you're going to be generous to one another and share one purse? Come on, how long is that going to last? How long until your greed and violence, if you're part of this group, how long till your cruelty and thievery is aimed toward one another? That time will inevitably come. And when it does, the violence with which you've destroyed the lives of others will destroy you. And Jesus gets at the same reality when he said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And just so, this group will meet their end, just, just as all will who are greedy for dishonest and unjust gain. Now, of course, as, as we read this, some of you are probably going, all right, I've never heard a voice like that in my life, <laughs> right? And if I did, I wouldn't fall for it. It's a little on the nose, don't you think? And of course, you know, some people do hear voices like this in life. Those of us who haven't been tempted to join a group like this, we've probably lived somewhat of a privileged life. Some young men and, and, and women growing up in certain parts of the world, certain parts of our city even, are tempted to join groups like this all the time. It's not that uncommon depending on where you live and where, who you're surrounded by. But the image of this gang here really is just something of an example of what we're to watch out for. It's an illustration. It's an example, an illustration of those greedy for unjust gain, but it's not the exclusive manifestation of it. And it's generally speaking, those who are greedy for unjust gain, for whom we're supposed to watch out, not just specifically this gang. But all those who are cruel, all those who are ruthless in the name of their greed and selfishness, all those who would conduct themselves with dishonesty and deceit, with cruelty and malice, all those who would, who would step on others and beckon us to join them in order to, to gain, that... that they're who we're warned against here. And when we, when we widen the scope to all those greedy for unjust gain and who would tempt us to join them, I'm sure we can think of many examples when we might find these kinds of people in life. We might find them in the boss at work who invites you to cut corners with them on a job that in some way would hurt customers but benefit you and him and the business might be in that coworker who misuses company funds in order to have a little fun and invite you to participate and then ostracize you if you don't. And likewise, those who might inaccurately log hours at work 
in order to make a little more that week. And well, you know, everybody does it. If you don't, you're on the outs. We don't trust you. It's computer hackers who steal people's money and identity. It's scam callers who lie and deceive and prey upon unsuspecting people. It's, it's the Wall Street insiders who exploit the system for their own gain. It's, it's politicians who use the money of their supporters and constituents, but who only do so to serve themselves. And, and, and we could go on and on and on. You're probably thinking of some specific examples in life right now, but it's any and all who would use people and step on people and deceive people and treat people without mercy, all in order to achieve their own selfish and greedy ends. Commentator Bruce Walke perhaps just sums it up best when he says that sinners love wealth and use people, saints love people and use wealth to help others. Those are the kinds of, of, of sinners that we're being warned against here. Those are the type of folks we're being cautioned against becoming. And Solomon appeals to our own sense of self-interest in some respect here. He says that all those who love wealth and use people, they're headed for a bad end. And, he, and he's right. Whether in this age or in the age to come, all those who love and worship money instead of the one true God, all those whose God is money and material things, and who therefore work things out to gain their God, and who though therefore don't fear the Lord. All those who are greedy for unjust gain, all those who would step on others in acts of cruelty and ruthlessness, in lies and deception in order to gain a buck, they're headed for destruction. And there's a sense in which, you know, this is just a principle written into the fabric of the created order. This, and it's just naturally observable in life. You might think of famous examples of this, like people like Bernie Madoff or Elizabeth Holmes, who have met with something of a, a, a bad end. Because ordinarily, listen, ordinarily in life, you can only conduct yourself with greed and dishonesty and cruelty for so long until it catches up with you. Ordinarily, if you live a greedy, cruel, dishonest life, you will meet with temporal judgments in this age. The, the law will catch up with you. Your, your, your family will withdraw from you. Your friends will cut you off. Ordinarily, those kinds of things happen. But then, you know, then again, I'm sure some of us can think of examples when someone has or is conducting themselves in this kind of way, and yet it doesn't seem to be catching up with them. Psalm 73.3 speaks about this. The psalmist, is, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That happens in life sometimes. Sometimes people are greedy and cruel and dishonest, and they seem to be getting away with it. But Solomon says, just wait. Just, just wait, because even if someone doesn't meet with temporal justice in this age, unless they repent... They will meet with eternal justice in the age to come. God's justice is coming. God will not be mocked. What someone sows, they will also reap. If not now, then in eternity. New City Catechism, question 18, speaks of this reality. When it says this, question. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Answer, no. Every sin is against the holiness 
the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. You see, the greedy and cruel and ruthless, unless they repent and cast themselves on Christ, will meet with destruction. You can count on that. And so the father says, don't join them, my child. Hate the gang's greedy temptation. And then lastly, we ought to heed the lady's good admonition. We find this in verses 20 to 33. And here we find an attribute of God personified, that of wisdom, this attribute of God. God is is gloriously, infinitely, beautifully wise, and his wisdom is here personified as an imposing and impressive woman. We'll see this this as a recurring image throughout Proverbs 1-9. through Wisdom will continue to be portrayed as this attractive, compelling woman, and, and this is probably the case for a couple of reasons. For one, the Hebrew word for wisdom is a feminine noun. Okay, and so naturally, it lends itself to being portrayed as a woman. Uh, but then also remember, Solomon, uh, he's talking to a young man here, right? And uh, so there's probably some rationale in portraying a wisdom as this enticing woman. I mean, a young man coming of age, an attractive woman might very well capture his attention here. But then... This particular woman is portrayed as, as we said earlier, she's portrayed as a street preacher. She's out there in the street. She's, she's proclaiming. She's announcing. She's, she's yelling at everybody. And listen to what she says here in verses 20 and 21. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out at the entrance of the city gate. She speaks. So she's out there in the street. She's at the market. She's at the entrance of the city gates. She's in the most trafficked and public locations of the city at that time. So unlike the greedy gang who lies in wait secretly to destroy unsuspecting people, wisdom is out in the open, calling out to just anyone who would listen. She's making herself universally available to anyone who would heed her call. And yet many don't. She confronts those who aren't listening here in verses 22. She calls out here three types of people, okay, three types of people who would follow the path of folly. We need to look at each of these because, at least briefly, because these are going to be some some, uh, words that we see again and again. These are going to be some specific kinds of people that we're going to see addressed again and again. First, she calls out the simpleton, right? She says, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? So we'll see these, the simple one, the, the simpleton much throughout Proverbs. But the simpleton, as just a, a category of people, he's, he's probably the least harmless of the three mentioned here, right? So the, the simpleton probably is the most likely to, to be turned, to, be, to, to listen to correction and be brought in the path of wisdom. However, the simpleton is just, he's just gullible, okay? He's, he's, He's impressionable, he's unsuspecting, he's unguarded, he tends to go with the flow and conform to whatever is convenient. He still has a chance. He can can still come under the influence of lady wisdom, however, he might also descend into the next of the two categories, both of which are a little more settled in their folly and, and unlikely to be changed. The next one is the scoffer. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? The scoffer in Proverbs is 
He's the most hardened and settled of fools. Also the most seemingly impressive. The, the, the scoffer is aggressive, he's confident, arrogant, calculating. He might even be successful in the short term, but he's also dangerous. Like that gang, the scoffer will destroy you and himself eventually. So you've got to watch out for the scoffer. But then there's also the fool. How long will fools hate knowledge, she asks here. And the fool is exactly what he sounds like. He's just a buffoon. He's not open to correction. He always thinks he knows best. He's a stubborn idiot. But to all, the, the simple, the scoffer, the fool, in verse 23, Lady Wisdom says, if you turn at my reproof, in other words, if you repent, that's what it means to, to turn here. If you, if you turn away from, if you repent of your folly, if, if the simple will give up their lack of commitment and turn themselves over to God, if the scoffer and the fool will humble themselves before the Lord, if they will decisively and conclusively turn away from their folly and submit themselves to the fear of the Lord, well, it says, God, God says, I will be your God and I will help you. That's what those words here mean when he writes, behold, if you turn, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you, saying I'll equip you and empower you to walk in wisdom and knowledge and instruction. I'll I'll help you as a father walks with and guides a beloved child. As Ray Ortland puts it, verse 23 is promising a batteries-included kind of Christianity, right? He's promising power and help and support if you would only repent and turn to him. But for those who don't heed these words, for those who, who don't turn from folly to wisdom, for those who don't heed, for those who ignore wisdom's counsel and have none of wisdom's reproof, she says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they'll call upon me, but I won't answer. Oh, they're going to seek me, diligently even, but they won't find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They'd have none of my counsel and despise my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and will have fill of their own devices. Their end will be destruction because storms in life come one day, sooner or later. Temporally, eternally, destruction is coming. And so notice here that the choice is urgent. If you don't turn now, it might be too late for you down the road. After the destruction comes. When that comes, Lady Wisdom says, I'll laugh at you, not listen to you. And, and, and don't misunderstand, it's not a vindictive laugh, right? It's a laugh of amazement. It's a laughter that's just astounded by the absurdity of those who would reject God's wisdom and then only seek Him when they don't like the consequences of their choices. Destruction and judgment, both temporal and eternal, will be their fate. And so for all who hear, turn now before it's too late. Because for those who do turn and repent in the fear of the Lord, she says they'll enter into a life of security and rest. Look at the last two verses there. That contrasts the end of the foolish with the 
end of the wise, it says, for the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Whoever listens to wisdom, whoever fears God and accepts his wise guidance, they will dwell secure. They'll be at ease. They'll be at rest. It's not to say that, that they'll never face difficulty or hardship. But it is to say that even when difficulty and hardship comes in life, those who listen to wisdom can face it with hearts full of confidence and peace. And and that just makes sense, doesn't it? When, When you consider that those who turn and listen to wisdom here, when those who turn and listen to the God of all heaven and earth, they can rest assured that whatever comes They have a Savior in heaven who is caring for them and guiding them and working all things together for their good. When you consider that no matter what life throws at you, you're not alone. You're not left to yourself to figure this life out all on your own. That you've got someone all wise, all powerful, all knowing, who is on your side, who is utterly for you, who deeply loves you well, then a sense of security and rest of heart just makes sense, doesn't it? And of course, this is all the more solidified for us in this side of the coming of Christ. Jesus, whom 1 Corinthians 1.30 would tell us he's, he's really wisdom personified, right? Jesus is truly, really wisdom personified. Jesus, who, who invites us to turn and come to himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. And he there tells us that for all who do come to him, who turn to him, who follow his path, who walk his wise path, they will find this kind of ease and rest for their souls because he's a gentle and lowly in heart kind of master. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus who claims the very words of our passage this morning for himself in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. When he says that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, suffering hardship comes. But those who build their house on the rock like this, it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Then everyone who hears these words of Christ and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Build your house on the rock. Build your life on Christ. Follow the path of Christ so that destruction won't await you but life and life abundant. You see, your friends, that, that wisdom is not an abstraction. Wisdom is not an idea to which we turn. Wisdom is actually really a person. And when we know this person, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and when we turn to him, when we turn to wisdom personified, when we turn to wisdom incarnate, 
Well, he pours out his spirit upon us and he guides us by his words. He guides us and he leads us into paths of flourishing and joy and righteousness. He leads us into rest and security no matter what life throws at us. And here's why. Because we know that the destruction we deserve for our foolishness in life actually fell on him on the cross. He met with the bad end we deserve. Because listen, those those cruel, dishonest, greedy, selfish people, we've been them. I've been them. The, The simpleton, the scoffer, the fool, we've each been him. And we know it. And we deserve the fate of that folly. And yet the only wise one, the one who is wisdom personified, met with it for us. And more, he also showed us that the path of wisdom that he walked truly does in the end meet with life and abundance and mercy and beauty because that destruction was not his end. He rose three days later. And now he stands before us saying, look to me. Come, I've I've paid for all your foolishness. I've shown you the path of wisdom, the path to security and ease. I've entered into it and you can come with me. Turn and follow. And if we do, he's telling you this morning, he's telling us this morning that we will dwell secure and we will be at ease without dread of disaster. We will meet with a good end. Heed the Christ's good admonition. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts as we come to the table. Remind us of who Christ is and what he's done for us in a way that compels us and draws us all the more deeply with all the more commitment to follow him on the path to life. Remind us of who he is and what he's done for us in a way that transforms us and turns us so that we might meet with the same end with which he's met. We pray this all in his name. Amen.